Thank you, worship team. And first through fifth graders, enjoy your time down in Kids Zone. Uh, we're thankful for the many volunteers who make Kids Zone possible. Awana on Wednesday nights possible. These things don't happen on their own. Uh, God's blessed them this fall. We're thankful for it. And, and one of the signs of his blessing is the volunteers that he sent us. I'm excited to be sharing God's word with you guys this morning. This is, this is exciting. I, I enjoy this part of my my job uh, because it's hanging out with my friends and we're talking about the most important thing possible. So uh, before we get started though, I want to ask God to just speak to all of us because this is a passage that we'll all learn from, myself included. And then we'll get into our guy David that we've been following for quite some time now. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together as worship, uh, for worship as a church family. And um, just ask that as I open my mouth, that they would hear your word and, and that you'd shut my mouth for anything that's not the truth. Help this time to just be clear uh, as we understand really how good you are, uh, that you intervene on all our behalfs. And in this story, just as we see uh, a picture of you, help us to understand more from your word about who you are and what you do and uh, help that to bless our hearts and encourage us to be more like you on the week to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you've been with us for a while, we've been in this series going through 1 Samuel called Meeting God in a Royal Mess. And you're going to see a mess about happen today. You're going to see God meet someone uh, and, and prevent something that could have been quite disastrous. So as you turn to 1 Samuel 25, if you haven't been with us, 1 Samuel kind of chronicles the, the transition out of judges, out of having rulers who are judges, into rulers who are kings for the nation of Israel. And we met Hannah at the beginning of the book. She prayed desperately for a son. She was given Samuel, who the book is named after. Samuel oversaw the reign of two kings. He saw Saul, the first earthly king over Israel, rise, grow, and then begin to decline. We get to see a little bit of the effect of that today. And we see David come on the scene. While Saul is still king, Samuel anoints David to be king after Saul. He says he's going to be a better king than Saul. We, we, see, we see Samuel today, we see David today, and we see the effects of, of what's been happening over the last 24 chapters. If you were with us last week, David had a unique opportunity. He was in a cave. Saul came in the cave. He was out on this, this expedition hunting David. David had a unique opportunity to take things into his own hands. This is something that happens again this, this chapter and again next chapter. Now, last chapter, he said, this, this is the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to take into my own hands, do what's right in my own eyes, kill Saul at this moment of vulnerability. Something else happens in this chapter today. We're going to look at uh, David again has an opportunity to take things into his own hands. But I think what, what's necessary to kind of understand why David reacts the way he, he does in this passage and what's maybe helpful for us to understand how maybe he was feeling is kind of an image that, that came to me this week. I want to ask you uh, this morning, if, if you're living, maybe like I am, or, or like a lot of us, if you're, if you're living in just kind of increasing tension, has the last year or a half been a relaxing time, or has it just, every time you go on to Facebook or Instagram or Fox News or one of the other news categories, you, you just build tension? Or has work been simple, or has it been complicated? You put your time and energy towards something, and and because it's a different environment out there, somebody criticizes you or insults you and it just builds and builds and builds. We're going to talk about David today, I think, in a very tense situation. 
As I said, Saul's been hunting him across the, just this wilderness, this awful place. And, and there's been occasions where David could have reacted. David could have taken that tension, taken things into his own hands. Hopefully he's a better archer than I am. Taking things into his own hands. He's, he's under constant stress, and he's, he's walking around like this. Taking things into his own hands and, and killed Saul. He had the opportunity. But, but maybe that's part of the problem with tension is once we release it in, in anger in our own means, I can't change the course of that arrow once it's gone. Isn't that part of the danger with anger is, is in our anger, do not sin. Well, well we might sin because it might be aimed at the wrong thing or the wrong person. So what we're going to talk about today is some reminders, some truths about who God is to help you with this tension, to help you as you live a life maybe with that bowstring stretched out, kind of how David is. Some truths about God that might help release the tension, help prevent you from, from firing that off into someone and, and, and doing something that you can't change the outcome of once it's done. There, there are some decisions that are undoable that happen because of tension. So I just want to paint that picture for you as we, as we begin our time in 1 Samuel 25. 1 Samuel 25 starts out with some cold reality for David. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. This, if you followed David, you know that he's got two guys that have been looking out for him. There's about two people outside of his own family that actually care about David. Samuel and who else? Jonathan. So right now, what do we start with? We start with the occasion where David is hounded out in the wilderness and one of his two supporting guys dies. Samuel's been with David. He anointed him. He spoke God's truth directly to him. And now Samuel's off of the field. So they buried him in his home at Ramah. Samuel, after Samuel told Saul the kingdom's going to be torn away from you, returned to his home in Ramah and had really stayed there ever since. It's kind of in the center of Israel, there near where Jerusalem will end up being. And in the meantime, the book continues. David rose in verse 1 and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So David has been hiding out in something called a stronghold. Some people believe it's En Gedi or Masada. It's near the Dead Sea there. He's been, he's been protecting himself as best he can from Saul and his men. And the elimination of Samuel, knowing he's got this resource, somebody who's going to stand up for him, somebody who's an ally, I think causes David to move even further south into the wilderness. But for one reason or another, we find out at the beginning of the story, things are already not going well. And maybe that bowstring just gets drawn back a little bit further. If you want to know what the wilderness looks like, this is a pretty good picture. In the middle there, there's a river. It is a river of gravel, though. I don't know what the Hebrew name is, but I can tell you, this is about as bad as it gets. There's not a whole lot of resources. Resources are key in this story. It's part of the, it's part of the ignition to, to almost an undoable decision. There was a man in Mahon whose business was in Carmel. So we're introduced to the first player in the story. He was very rich. That's going to come in pretty significant to our guy David here in a moment. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. So much like right now is harvest time for many of our church family who are farmers. They're out there harvesting their corn and soybeans. This was harvest time for him. He was a sheep herder. It's probably in the spring. He was shearing all of his sheep. This is payday. It was a big deal. That's going to build a little bit more of the tension of the story. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. 
That's pretty stark. It's one of those matches that you look at and you're like, how did this happen? Abigail and this guy. Well, we're going to learn more about this guy here in a minute. He was a Calebite. I think this is important here because in a moment you're going to hear how he regards David in conversation. And if you're familiar with who Caleb is, Caleb and Joshua were the two faithful spies that went into Israel and came back and said, we can, we can take the promised land. This is ours. God's going to provide it to us. So this guy comes from a faithful lineage. He also comes from the same tribe as, as David. They're part of the same big family, this, this tribe of Judah, that, that they're looking out for each other. They're cut from the same cloth in God's kingdom and God's family. But watch how Nabal regards David shortly. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. I want to start by telling you, sometimes it's harder when you do everything right. When, when you come to somebody in peace, you're blameless, you do everything right. And then you get a reaction like David does. I want you to hear how David does everything right here so far. The way he greets Nabal, he says, Thus shall you greet him. He's so clear with his men. He says, Peace be to you, Nabal. Peace to you. And peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. David covers Nabal with this blessing and says, I just I want to start things off on the right foot for what I'm about to ask. I hear that you have shearers. See, David's not a fool. He knows that he doesn't have resources. In a minute, we'll find out that he's got 600 men and whoever their family is hanging out with him. There's these survivalists out in the wilderness, and he knows that this is payday for Nabal, so it can also be payday for David. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you, Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. David's timing is specific, and he knows that he's done something good for Nabal and for his people. He tells them information that Nabal would easily be able to check, does everything right. Makes a request, hey, we've done something good for you. It's kind of this word-of-mouth contract. We're going to be repaid now for, for protecting your people. Please give us whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. See how humble he is? He says, I'm your son. David's consistently doing that in the story. He's humble and puts himself beneath people. David's young men come and they say this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited to see what this guy, I think the King James says he's churlish, which I think is not a compliment. How is he going to respond? Nabal answered David's servant, Who is David? You think Nabal knows who David is? Let's, let's go back here for a second. Saul had killed this whole town, Nob, for supporting David. He'd been sending emissaries to cities that might be supporting David, asking if they're there. If this was going on in your neighborhood, would you know who David is? Yeah, he knows who David is. If, if nothing else, because they're from the same tribe, he knows who David is. And he's saying, who is this guy? I'm really rich. I've got 3,000 sheep. Who's David? So he begins to insult him. Who's the son of Jesse? And David puts himself beneath Nabal and says, I'll be your son. I'm Saul's son. Nabal responds with, what is, what is your family lineage? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Oh, the insult gets worse. He's been faithful to Saul while Saul's tried to kill him multiple times. He served Saul at Saul's absolute worst. I think it was the last time I got to preach with you, he began to play the harp for Saul when Saul was beginning to 
to fall apart as a man. He's been a faithful servant. He only fled Saul when it was life or death. And it's almost like Nabal knows exactly where to get David. I wonder if that's true. Are some things just so precise that you're tempted to believe them and be insulted by them? Seems like that's what Nabal's doing here. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shearers? He's not self-centered at all. And give it to the men who come from I do not know where. See, Nabal knows exactly what he's doing. And he's saying, you're beneath me. I don't need to help you out. I don't owe you anything. This good that you did for me, I'm not going to repay it with good. So David's young men turned away and came back and told them all of this. Can you imagine being those guys going back to David like, oh, man. You go ahead and tell them. Not you. So they walked back to David, you know, hiding out in this camp. I think David expected to get, to get paid, to get, to get a gift. I don't think he expected to do what he's about to do. So they go back to David. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. All right, it's time, guys. Tried it the nice way. Now I know how to get what I need. He's already like this, so why not just let one go? Who's going to care about Nabal? We already know he's basically an idiot. We'll come to find out his family doesn't even like him. So, so David says, I know, I know I can do what I can do with this sword. And every man of them straps on his sword. David is about to make a decision that he can't undo because he's been walking around in tension. This insult that, that Nabal leveled against him landed, went into his head. I think David began to believe, you know what, Nabal's right. I better silence him. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, when 200 remained with the baggage. See, we're going to talk about anger a little bit, and you might say, well, the Bible doesn't tell me to, be, to not be angry. It says not to sin in, in my anger. And, and you're right. And, and in fact, we read a lot about God's anger against sin. And one of the giant differences about our anger and God's anger is his is incredibly holy and precise. When he... When he punishes evil with his anger, he punishes the evil person. And we'll see that. But what David is about to do here is he's about to, to pull out a sledgehammer to drive attack. Do you think 400 men is, is needed for this rich guy? Come to find out when they get there, he's going to be drunk. So it would have been a pretty easy fight. Bottom line is, is David's like overwhelming force. I'm going to react in anger, and I know how to get what I want. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. He was there. He says, Hey, listen, I I should give you a heads up. And he railed at them. So they heard the insult and they know it's not true. Listen to how what they say matches what David pledged to Nabal. The young men were very good to us and we suffered no harm. David was doing the right thing. Tell him the truth. We did not miss anything when we were here in the fields as long as we went with them. Hey, hey, they didn't take advantage of us. I don't know about you, but sheep herding in the wilderness would be difficult enough. And then you have these tribes farther south of you who will come and pick on you, take your sheep, kill you, take your weapons. And they said, none of this happened while we were with them. In fact, they were a wall to us, both by day and by night. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. So everything David said was true. He was polite. Nabal insults him, and his guys, Nabal's guys, Nabal's servants, back David up and say, this guy is a good guy. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all of his house. He's such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Again, everybody knows 
who Nabal is. Everybody knows what he's like. Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and led them on donkeys. So she, she's in a hurry to go do something, to try to intervene, to take these gifts and, and just see if she can change the outcome of what seems to be a disaster headed her way. And David is also in a hurry to go do something really really bad. And we hear God speak through Abigail here in a moment. And we, we, we hear the truth about what David was about to do and what it would have cost him. She says to her young men, get started. Get out there. Get a hold of him. The closer you get to him, the further out you stop him, the less of a chance there'll be a disaster. And she comes with them. I think it's amazing that she goes out uh, with them. Think, think about it in context of history here. You have this Middle Eastern culture where Abigail as a woman is going out to greet a war party. Think about that woman. She's beauty, she's beautiful, and she's discerning. What a wise woman. She goes out, she's also brave. She goes out to meet David and his men. She does not tell Nabal. See, her and all of her men know you can't reason with this guy. As she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Watch what she starts with. David started humble, said the truth. Watch what she says to David. David has said, I'm sorry, I forgot about this. This is the on-the-road talk. As David and his men are on their way to go uh, wreak havoc on Nabal and his family. He's saying, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness. I did this good for no good. This was a waste. So that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he returned me evil for good. Have you heard that phrase before in this in the first Samuel? Evil for good, good for good, return for evil. This is a problem for David because when he does something good, people pay him with evil. So maybe that leads to pulling that bowstring back a little bit more. You got something that's a little extra sensitive because it seems like every time you try to do the right thing, somebody kicks you in the shin, somebody does something evil back. That's been David's experience for the last couple chapters, is he's tried to serve, obey and protect Saul even from himself, David's just been hounded and tested. God, do so with the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. See how unrestrained this anger is for David? One guy insults him. Nabal's guys stand up for him, but he's going to go kill all of them. I think when, when you act out of anger and that built-up tension that's just building and building and building, one of the dangers in acting with that anger is once you touch that off, it's going to affect a lot more than just the target. There's going to be a lot of collateral damage. I think that's why we're warned. Hey, hey don't sin out of your anger. Be careful. It's, it's crouching at your door, God warns Cain. And this is no different. He's about to do something that's going to be disastrous. Verse 23, Abigail saw David. So they've, they've met in this pass between two mountains and, and they, they see each other. Abigail acts first. She hurries and gets down from her donkey, fell before David on her face, and bowed to the ground. You have this picture where you have this army, bloodthirsty on one side, ready to, to go wreak havoc, slash and burn on Nabal and his family. And you have this woman leading a different kind of charge. She's out there bringing gifts, humbling herself as a servant, saying, I don't know if there's any way to avoid this disaster, but hear me out. 
Just watch how she speaks to David here. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Wow. Just take me. I, I can tell what you're about to do. Kill me in place of the guilty one. Put on me whatever you're going to do to Nabal and his household. If you could just punish me instead on his behalf, that would be better. Amazing, amazing woman, amazing character. So she throws herself at his feet and says, I'll take it. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. So not only does she put herself in a position of great vulnerability to David and, and, and offer to take on Nabal's guilt, Nabal's punishment. She also says, I, I, just hear me out. I want you to hear the truth. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. She's saying his name is really who he is, and his name in Hebrew is, is fool. So whether this is his actual name, and his parents just really forecasted a, a terrible life for him, or it was his nickname that he was such a fool that he embraced. Either way, everybody in his life recognizes this. And she says, don't give him that much credit by letting what he says live up here. Let it be true to you. So she says, he is what his name is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She shows that she is, in spite of the fact, going to take on the guilt for Nabal. She's innocent. She, she didn't see what happened. She has no cause to be punished. She's just laying herself down with the truth. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, listen to the truth that, that Abigail tells David here. Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Well, has God restrained David yet? Well, kind of yes and kind of no. David's already out ready to go kill Nabal and all of his men come to find out. Abigail is suggesting, hey, this is, this is your chance to do what's right here, David. And she puts in her wise counsel exactly what's happening, what, what God has sent her to do, and the best advice possible. See, blood guilt was something that, as she later explains, is going to come between him and his people when he's king and come between him and God when he's king. This is going to weigh on him. It's always going to be on his hands. She says, if you try to solve this problem with your own hands, David, especially the way that you're prepared to do it, this is going to cost you in a big way. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. She's saying, don't give them this much credit. Don't let what they say, don't let what these people do that are hounding you, David, even Saul, just make them all fools in your mind. Don't let it land and, and take control of you. She reminds David, and I, and I want to be reminded as I read this passage, that, that what you're going to do in your own hands will lead to disaster. But if you would just remember that God saves, that God will, will bring the solution. If you can put your trust into his efforts instead of our own, things will go well for you. See, she knows, as she explains, if, if David tries to solve this situation in his own power, that it, it will blow up in his face and it will cost him dearly. So I wonder if as tension builds and you're wondering what the solution for a given problem in your life is, and it appears to be, it appears to be right within your reach, in your own means, you could, with your own means, get to this end that you desire. Maybe you could think about the fact that to, to release some of that tension, you could think about the fact that God will save, that, that, that he, his plan is, is better than our plan can be, and when he does it, it will be right, and it, it won't cost you. It'll cost him. 
like Abigail, it will cost him. Let's continue. Now this present. So she points to these gifts. After she puts herself in, in Nabal's place, she points to this gift. Your servant has brought to my Lord who be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Here's, here's what you wanted, David. She's trying to make things right. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. She's reminding David of the truth. And she starts to reference this promise made to David that we don't get to see until 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you want to look ahead at Nathan's conversation with David, this is amazing. She starts quoting what God is going to promise David many years later, that you'll be a sure kingdom, a sure house. She points David to the truth. What Nabal said, David, you guys, what Nabal says to you is not true about you, but what God says is true. He's going to make a sure house, David. Don't risk it. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall be found in you so long as you live. I think what she's saying here is, when you are living with this much tension, and you have that flight or fight, and you start to shake, it changes the way you look at the events around you. It might change your thinking into thinking, I am on my own, there's nobody out here for me. I'm fighting my own battles. And she's saying, David, remember the battles that you're fighting aren't on your own behalf. They're on God's behalf. It changes our perspective to know that we are fighting God's battles and, and, the, and the behaviors, the actions, the thoughts that we'll entertain, especially when we're in this tension, can't, can't be ca- characterized by anger and, and undue wrath like David's decisions are about to be. So she reminds him of this correct perspective. If men rise up, in verse 29, to pursue you and to seek your life, has that happened to David? I think people have already rose up. They're they're seeking his life even now. The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living. I, I love that language. He says, God has got you wrapped up in a parcel. You're safe. Bound in this bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. So I think she's talking to David's vulnerability and insecurity here. She's saying, I know you feel like you're on your own and you've got nobody except for these hired help. But God's got you bound up. He's got you safe in his hand. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. What an, what an accurate analogy for David. See, to me, this is is further proof that Nabal and Abigail know exactly who David is. They know what David did from the time he was a little boy and came onto the scene, that he's been killing his enemies with a sling as long as we've known him. And she's saying, well, God's got you bound up and secure and protected, and his eye is on you. He's going to fling your enemies out away from you. See, this echoes some, some words that Christ says in John chapter 10. Verse 28, he says, I will give my children, the people he's speaking of, I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So this is the same truth that Christ promises is true of us as his people. Abigail's reminding David, David, don't compromise, because of what you think Nabal said might be true. Here, here's what's true about who you are. She reminds, God, reminds David, God is going to protect you. This is not the battle you have to fight. You're fighting the Lord's battles. If you take things into your own hands, if you try to find your security in what you can accomplish, you're going to fail. It's going to have a disastrous effect on on your ability to be king. 
I think the same is true for us. You get in that fight or flight, that, that string is stretched out, you're ready to fire that arrow, you think you have no other option. Might might help you to remember that, that God protects, that our security is not found in, in what we can achieve for ourselves, what we can secure for ourselves. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, Abigail is so sure that God's promise is going to come true. My Lord will have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. You could be a king without guilt. Think about what the type of king Saul is right now. You don't have to be like him. You can be that better king. He's, he's got guilt. He's got blood on his hands. David, you can be a different king. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She says, I, I'm hoping that it will also be different for me when you're king. I'm hoping that, that the, you being different than Saul will have an effect on the country. Remember me when you get there. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. It's not lost on David what happened here. It wasn't Abigail speaking. It was, it was God reminding him of truths that were going to avert disaster. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. David knows exactly what just happened. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, that's an interesting phrase there. What, what he was about to do was also going to hurt Abigail. Even though he was going to kill all the men, and only the men, where was that going to leave Abigail? By the end of the story, and we're not going to cover the verses, but we'll summarize it. You see, God provides for David, and God provides for Abigail. But he's grateful for the restraint God has shown him by intervening in this way. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And David received from her hand what she had brought him. He's, he's so clear and, and understands what was averted here. Next morning, it would have been a disaster, he says. And he knows exactly what God has done by preventing that. He says to her, go in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. He's not going to do what he said he was going to do. And, and he's responding. See, that's, that's, that's key here. He responds to the truth that, that Abigail's told him. Abigail comes to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. He, he could have invited David to this feast. It would have been fair. But Nabal's back home partying. And we learn a little bit more about his character by finding out in verse 36, Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. She understands there's no reasoning with him normally. And now that he's under the influence of this alcohol, we're not going to get anything accomplished. But watch what happens tomorrow. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Abigail tells David the truth. It changes David's behavior. Abigail tells Nabal the truth, and he has a stroke. He has a heart attack. He has some kind of event that, that brings about the end of his life. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. You see, remember I said the difference between our anger, especially in all that tension, and God's anger against evil is that his is incredibly precise. His is, his, he can be angry against evil and holy at the same time. And so he strikes Nabal dead to punish him. David will realize this here in a moment. Instead of causing David to, to destroy Nabal and his whole household. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. 
and he's kept back his servant from wrongdoing. It's not lost on David what has happened here. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Later in David's life, he writes many psalms. And in Psalm chapter 7, if you want to look it up, I'm going to read to you Psalm 7, 8 through 11. Look up the whole psalm later on, though, and just see how his thinking has changed. It's about some situation where he is insulted by a man named Cush, who is a Benjamite. We don't know what happened because the story is not covered in Scripture. But listen to how he speaks. He says, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. It's a bold request. But maybe because of changes in his character like this, he can say that he has the integrity. According to the integrity that is in me, O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God. See, when you fight the Lord's battles and not your own, you can be on the defensive behind the best shield that there is. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. Now listen to this, verse 11. He says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Want to know the truth about living under tension? Is, is that God gets angry at evil. You might think it's just you. You get angry about what's going on in your life. But God also, David says, God feels indignation against evil every single day. Think of all the evil out in the world that is building that tension with you and I. And, and, and God also feels indignation every day. Verse 16, though, we'll skip down to, he says, His mischief returns upon his own head. He's now speaking of the evil man. And on his own skull, his violence descends. See, David learns through this situation, as well as others, that, that God does repay evil. God does avenge evil. He sees this with Nabal and Abigail, and he sees this further on in his, his time as king over Israel. That's a good reminder for us, too. If, if we're at the end of that, that draw of the bow and we're ready to deal with evil in our own hands, maybe to go overboard, maybe to do what we see is right in our own eyes, Maybe this is a better question of, of what we're trusting in. Does, does what we get angry about point us to or make us think about what are we actually trusting in? So we, we can remember that we can trust in him. We can trust that God will indeed avenge evil. So the story kind of ends here. The, the, the verses continue that David marries Abigail. And by doing so, God provides for Abigail. And God provides for David by, by giving him Nabal's estate. David takes another wife, and then we're reminded that even though David did everything right at the beginning of the story, even though David responds to the truth when God brings it to him, that he's still disadvantaged. It ends by telling us that his wife, Michael, has been given to another man by Saul, reminding us that, that things are still broken, things are still messed up. But you might be sitting here thinking about like those arrows being fired off and and decisions that you've made that have disastrous consequences, things that we can't undo. Uh, maybe like David, you, you went overboard and, and caused harm to more than just the person who offended you. Maybe your work has been insulted and, and, and that insult gets in your head or in your heart and causes you to work differently for your employer or causes you to take that frustration out at home. So you might be sitting here thinking, I wish that God would have, would have met me out there and stopped what I did. I wish that he would, have, he would have intervened like he did with David. I wish that I would have had an Abigail who would have stopped and made me think about the long-lasting implications of, of taking things into my own hands. I think it's fitting to, to end by just reminding you that he did. That you, you, you may have made those decisions. 
But a thousand years after David is met by Abigail on the back of a donkey, there, there is another gift on the back of a donkey that, that comes in the place of someone else's evil and, and puts themselves in the position to receive the punishment for evil, for, for the guilt of all men, not just one man. And instead of just offering himself in the place of, of the evil one, he, he gets offered up and does die, does accept the punishment on behalf of the guilty. See, see Jesus Christ rode a donkey towards danger, towards the city of Jerusalem, a city full of people who a week later would kill him. And Isaiah 53 looks forward to this and says, it's, it's by all these injuries that Christ incurred that we have peace with God. It's by all of these, these insults, by all of this damage that happens to Christ in our place that our guilt is covered. So if you're thinking about decisions that you've made that have had disastrous consequences, I would remind you that, that you can put your hope and trust in the one who came in our place, who intervened in our place, and for our sake, and offered himself up in our place. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you did intervene, and that what you did so long ago covers us even today. And I just ask for my my friends here that as we live in a life that that tension is unavoidable, that we would put our trust in you and your protection and your salvation, and that you would send your spirit to intervene in our hearts, to keep us from decisions from, from words that cause harm, and that you would remind us of the truth that you yourself threw yourself down in our place and, and took on your shoulders our guilt and our shame and our sin. But we're so thankful that, that we can look forward to a new life, a change because of what you've done. And I just pray that people would put their trust in that truth today and that that would have an effect on the decisions they make from now on. Thank you for this church family and our time together in your word. Just pray that that you'd be with us this week as we go forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.